Hi, friends, and welcome back to House Wine. I am the host, Rachel. This is my wine podcast. Uh, I have set up my little pillow fort here in my bedroom in Toronto uh, so that I can record this very, very special edition episode, the holiday episode of House Wine. So welcome back and happy holidays. And we're going to talk about mulled wine today. We're going to talk everything, uh, history of mulled wine, who started drinking this wine, where did it come from, what are recipes. So it's going to be a short one, uh, but we're just going to go over this sort of fun niche topic and then, yeah, let's do it. So we know if you've listened to this show, that they make wine all over the world. China is the third largest producer in the world of Vitis vinifera. So wine is literally everywhere, but there will always be something about wine that really makes us think kind of like the rolling hills of Tuscany and these, you know, coastal vineyards of Provence, rather than this sort of idea of the mountains of Argentina or the deserts of Washington State. Because when we think of wine and we think of vineyards, we always really think about this very sort of Eurocentric European idea of what wine is. So when I say Gluchwein, what do you imagine? I, in my mind, see, you know, like an alpine ski resort, uh, probably somewhere in Austria. It's in the Alps with really tall, beautiful, blonde people that look like the Von Trapp family jumping off their skis in their one-piece snowsuits heading to an après ski. And maybe they're going to hate some fondue, but mulled wine is in that picture. When I say mulled wine, what I think of is sort of this like Victorian English Christmas scene with people skating on the Thames River and sipping on mulled wine on Christmas Eve. And the whole thing has this very sort of uh, Dickensian charm, but like the good Dickensian, not the one where everybody's dying. So mulled wine or warm wine can really sort of invoke these very specific ideas of the holidays and what is happening. So what is mulled wine? and mulling in general. Where did it start? What is the history? And why do we still do it? Also, can you mull anything? Should you mull anything? We're going to get into it. So I will preface this by saying that I love the holidays. Contrary to what some people might believe, my whole adult life I have spent working my butt off in the hospitality industry. And December 25th, whether you celebrate Christmas or not, is like this perfect eye in the hurricane where nothing happens. Nothing is open. There are no guests. There is no wine service, no messages to the staff, no schedules being made or posted, no time off requests coming in. Just this one still calm day where you can't do anything, even if you try to, except go to my local dumpling place in Chinatown. That's open. It's a tradition. It's amazing. So this is my love of the holidays in the hospitality industry. It's really this one day of year where you can kick up your feet. 
you have this unbooked off, unasked for vacation, and it's this kind of bliss after this maelstrom of insanity that is the holidays leading up. And I also love snow. I love winter. I know, don't hate me. It's a a controversial opinion, but I love all things cold. So mulled wine really appeals to me in this kind of, uh, you know, I'm strapping on my skates, I'm bringing a thermos, and I'm doing wintry things kind of way. When we talk about mulled wine, we have to really think in the context of all the wine that has ever been made in the entirety of history. Since the first time that somebody went out into the forest, picked some grapes, left them in a bowl for a few days too long and realized, A, they still tasted pretty good, and B, they made you feel kind of funny. So most of the wine that has ever been made in the history of the world has been bad, quite literally. If we drank the wines of the Romans today, we would probably find many of them thin, sour, and maybe overly barnyardy or mousy, for lack of a better term, both faults that are very common in uh, so-called natural winemaking that try to mimic these really low intervention styles and practices in these times before we had stainless steel and these times before we even had oak barrels. However, even today, they're doing these things in, you know, machine-made amphora or machine-made concrete eggs. And so even then, we're kind of like, we're still in a place that was better than when you were fermenting your wine in a clay pot that maybe your mother made. So things have really come to a point where we'll never really know what these wines tasted like, but we can guess that they were probably not as good as the wines today. So even most of this bad wine, though, was still drinkable. But think that most of the time, wines were fermented and transported in the same vessel, and those were clay amphora. And to protect the wines inside from oxidization, which many of the Greeks and Romans knew as a wine fault, the Greeks and the Romans would often cover the top of the wine with olive oil, like this ancient wine salad dressing. The olive oil would rise to the top and seal the wine. But if you think you then load all of those amphora onto a cart that maybe moves around a lot, the wine swishes around, well, it didn't always keep the bacteria or the oxygen out completely. Likewise, the Greeks would use pine resin to seal up their amphora, which would leave the resulting wine tasting like pine resin. And this is a modern style of wine as well. It's called Retsina. Uh, It's made in central Greece. And when I think about it now, it's kind of like, it kind of fits into the mulled wine category. Because they did this for so long, people ended up liking the taste of the pine resin. And it's kind of this nowadays novelty niche wine style that you can still find made. The story here is though, is that we have been trying to cover up the taste of bad wine for a long time. These days, Retsina is a fine enough wine with the pine resin added in after the fact for taste. But mulled wine was not, in fact, started in Victorian England. It was most likely started by the Greeks, but then popularized by the Romans. 
as they spread their winemaking culture all through Europe and began growing wine in some areas where they weren't able to make very good wine, and they colonized some areas where they weren't even able to make wine at all. Think northern France, England, the Netherlands, Belgium, etc. However, they were shipping wine there. And we're still talking about antiquity here, so often the wine would arrive, and it would have already spoiled, or it would just be bad. The Romans were serious about wine, and they really kept the good wines for themselves. So it wasn't uncommon for quote-unquote normal people, working people, soldiers, farmers, all the people who weren't part of the upper classes to aromatize their wines with herbs and spices. And this is where we see the tradition of a lot of vermouths coming from as well. The Romans called these wines conditum paradoxum which translates roughly into traveler's wine. And this was typically aromatized with honey, sometimes dates, depending on where you were in the Roman Empire, with saffron and with peppercorns. We know this because, of course, our boy, Pliny the Elder, wrote about the medicinal quality and the restorative properties of heated wine with spices and left several recipes he came across around his travels in Europe. Recipes that have survived from antiquity exist, and because the internet is so wonderful sometimes, there are people who have made true to what is believed to be the original recipes of this. Word is, is that it's quite spicy because of all the peppercorns, but that it was also drank heated to mask the flavor because heating matterizes the wine, changing the fruit character of the wine, and therefore also changing the flavor. So the first time that we come across mulling, in the more traditional sense as we know it, where it's actually called mulling, is in the form of Curie, which is a cookbook that dates back to the late 1300s. It's from England, and it says that mulling is a mixture of the following herbs. Cinnamon, ginger, galangal, cloves, long pepper, nutmeg, marjoram, cardamom, and grains of paradise. And it says that it can be applied to beer, cider, red, or white wine to fortify it. Now, obviously, this is not the fortified wine that we know, but rather flavored wine with a strong flavor, because that has a lot of herbs and spices. Now, why did it become so popular in Britain that they were the first place to really write down a recipe for mulling? Well, if we look at what was going on in wine in the 1300s, we really have to look at what was going on in the rest of Europe. This was the age of monks. Cistercian and Benedictine monks of all and monks of all orders really had taken over winemaking in many of the great winemaking centers of Europe, like Burgundy, the Rhone, the Mosel in Germany, and the quality of the wine had improved. And the monks also started bringing their winemaking techniques and skills to places where wine hadn't been brought by the Romans yet. The exception for that being England and those Nordic countries that couldn't grow their own wine and still had to import it in. Hence, they were still getting the bad wine. So even though the English were the first to write down the recipe for mulling, it seems that there's a version of this in almost all Nordic countries. Norse countries call this glog, or glog. I always forget how to say, uh, is it an umlau? The two dots above the U or the O? Uh, glog is with an umlau, G-L-O-G-G, and it can be made from fruit juices. They often add brandy or aquavit, uh, which is a Scandinavian liquor that I feel like 
every back bar has a bottle of with just one ounce missing. I mean, next time you see it, try it, but it's a potato and grain spirit that is flavored with herbs and is what can be best described as special. Alpine countries call their mulled wine gluhwein, also with an umlau, and add things like kirsch and will often use fruit wines like cherry wine for flavor. And this is really synonymous with Christmas markets. You think about like Christmas markets in Alsace, in Austria, in Hamburg, and these really sort of like picturesque, very like pretty Christmas markets all around Germany. Uh, in Latvia and the Baltic countries, they call this Karstvins, and they add Riga balsams. And now I have had balsams, and if Akvavit is not for the faint of heart, balsams will make your eyes pop out of your head. It is like Jägermeister, but more herby somehow, and also thick and syrupy but also 50% ABV. So I can only imagine that Latvian Karstvins is very uh, herbaceous, probably, if they're adding balsams. Balsams, also very acquired taste. Try it if you ever see it, but um, just know that it will put hairs on your chest. Then, of course, there is the mulled wine of England, perhaps the most popular uh, that has not changed very much since that original recipe in the form of curry. This is very much the mulled wine of a Christmas carol, and in most ways, it's associated with the holidays. Charles Dickens did write about this in the book, and though it had always been a winter drink, most people pinpoint this as a pivotal moment in history when mulled wine went from being just a cold-weather drink to a specialty holiday drink. And this is really how we see it today. It's this kind of warm holiday drink that you always drink in December. So what kind of wine should you use for your mulled wine? Use a bad wine. <laughs> That's why they're throwing in a bunch of ginger, cardamom, cinnamon, nutmeg, and honey in it. I think uh, that a wine that is not too tannic, but also a wine that's not too acidic is usually a good call. Merlot works well. Grenache Syrah blends work well. I don't like to use a wine that's too light-bodied. I like to stay away from a Pinot Noir or Gamay, though I would say that it probably doesn't matter too much. Do what you like, as long as it's a lower quality, cheap wine, then you are in business. So here's how I make mulled wine. One bottle, 750 milliliters of cheap Merlot. I like Merlot for some reason. It's sort of a fruit-driven wine. It's full-bodied, but it's not overly tannic. I put in half a cup of port, cheap port, nothing fancy, four cloves, two cardamom pods, two star anise, two tablespoons of honey, two cinnamon sticks, and a whole orange sliced up. You heat it up, not to boiling point, but just to warming point, uh, and you serve it in a travel mug while you take the dog out for a walk down the beach on Christmas morning. I feel like this is the podcast version of one of those annoying online recipes where you have to wade through the childhood memories of someone's favorite dish before you find the actual measurements for the recipe. And that's mulled wine. It was made by the Romans. It was popularized by the English, but it goes by many names. In French, you can call it vin chaud. You can call it all kinds of, it has all kinds of names, all kinds of connotations, but above all, it is cheap wine that has been flavored with baking spices. And I'll leave you with this recipe that I found online. 
It's from 1869 from Mrs. Beaton's book of household management, and it says, To mull wine. Ingredients. To every pint of wine, allow one large cupful of water, sugar, and spice to taste. In making the preparations like above, it is very difficult to give the exact proportion of ingredients like sugar and spice, as what quantity might suit one person would be to another quite distasteful, which I think is the 19th century way of saying, just throw a bunch of shit in wine and do whatever the hell you want. So from house wine to you, I hope you have a very, very happy holidays. I hope that you're all safe. I hope that you're all healthy. And I hope that you get to spend some quality time with people you love, no matter what that looks like this year. We are not out of this thing yet, but we can still drink some bubbles. We can still celebrate a year gone by and the year ahead, and we can still mull some cheap wine. If you enjoy this podcast, the best gift you can give me is to scroll down, leave a rating, leave a review, uh, and tell a friend that you love to drink wine with about it. My name is Rachel. Uh, that's Rachel with an A-E-L, Picard like the captain. And you can reach this podcast uh, a few ways. We have the House Wine Instagram at House Wine Podcast on Instagram. We have my personal Instagram. If you're just dying to get a hold of me, that's at Rachel Picard, just my name. And you can email in as well at housewifepodcast at gmail.com. Happy holidays. I will see you all probably before the new year for a special New Year's episode. And stay safe and drink lots of wine. Bye, everyone. <laughs>